Hello, and welcome to MedTech Monday. I'm Tom Shiginsky, and I came up with the idea of producing a MedTech Monday podcast in exchange for my rent at Nemec at the Cambridge Innovation Center in Providence. Before we get into the last episode I will produce of MedTech Monday, I'd like to say a couple things. I have enjoyed every one of these interviews. I have learned an immense amount about MedTech and the development of products for the healthcare market. You can never stop learning. If anyone wants to reach me for producing podcast or Amazon Alexa development, you can email me at tom at audiostrategy.net. That's tom at audiostrategy.net. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to MedTech Monday, a podcast series about medical technologies, trends, entrepreneurship, um, and innovations coming out of Southern New England. I'm your host, Danielle Sturm, and I'm here with my co-host, Tom Chiginski. Hello, Tom. Hello, Danielle. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. And good. I just want to say, as we go into our last episode here, what a pleasure uh, it has been, both from a, uh, a personal standpoint and an intellectual standpoint, in co-hosting this with you. I've really enjoyed myself. Thank you. And I and few of my last podcasts, we mentioned how this is going to be our last episode together. I'm really sad to see you go. Um, but I hope I wish you luck on what you're going on to next. And um, I'm going to miss you. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, we have a, I think, a very interesting episode for your last episode. Um, we have guest Michael Pereira, the Chief Strategy and Technology Offer at Zymedica. Mike, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Danielle and Tom. Awesome. Awesome. Especially, I know it's your day off, so thank you so much for joining us on this <laughs> snowy day off. <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those things, you, you get a day off, but it's not really, uh, yep. you know, in, in this world. You know, this new connected world, there's always something connecting you back. Right? Yep, exactly. That's why I, I, I ran into my neighbor this morning. She's like, did you enjoy your snow day yesterday? I'm like, snow, snow day? I, like, I was working on my computer inside the whole day, but it was nice. I saw some of the local high schools and middle schools around here gave their students days off just to say, let's go back to normalcy. There's snow, like take a break, which I thought was very, very nice. Yes. So Mike, you have been a champion and leader of Zymedica for about 23 years. You've been in the industry longer. Can you tell us about your background in the industry and how that really has led you to the role you're in today? Um, sure, absolutely. So uh, as you said, I've been with Zymedica for 23 years. Uh, I uh, started off as a development engineer at, at Zymedica and really came over uh, because really I appreciated the user-centered design approach um, and and really wanted to make a difference and an impact to society, right? And a lot of the folks at Zymedica just really felt that way. Uh, and when you have common goals and common uh, vision, uh, it's, it's just a powerful way to actually make a difference uh, and to get things done. Uh, so in my role at, at Zymedica, I started development engineer, as I mentioned, and then had a variety of different roles, really growing the organization from 12 to 200 plus individuals uh, and had a variety of different roles in as a head of engineering, head of program management, um, and, and really led 300 some odd different programs within the organization. Uh, it really provided a really good broad view of how to get things done in an efficient manner uh, and to really promote the whole user-centered innovation process uh, that really makes a difference. Mm -hmm. Now, today, what do you focus on as chief strategy and technology officer? Kind of what do you work or manage? Yeah. Th so the two parts of my role, uh, one of the things that Zymedica has done in order to maintain its leadership within uh, the medical device in vitro diagnostic and, and drug delivery spaces or those verticals that we work in um, is our leadership and understanding of uh, technology as a function of efficacy, right? And how to really bring technology and merge it with that user-centered user innovation that we talked about, uh, that I mentioned. And um, that's a part of my role now, right? So that part of that focus is as we grow, it's harder and harder to maintain because there's so much happening out there um, and and there's so much happening that needs to be part, brought into relevance to uh, the challenges that we face today uh, for our clients and for and for society. And so that part of my job is to uh, search out uh, and hire the best of those folks that are working 
uh, and doing research in those particular technology areas, bring him on board to Zymedica, really elevate Zymedica to continue to be ahead of the curve uh, and be prepared for when our clients come to us looking for help in particular areas, uh, that we can provide that help uh, in a way that accelerates um, developments for you know the medical device technologies that we're working on. On the other side, the strategy side is is really focused more on the understanding the client's goals and needs. Uh, most of our clients come to us looking to how they can make a difference in the world, um, and a lot of the KPIs that allow them to do that rely on the business side of things. Understanding what drives the business, um, whether it's net present value or a fundraising for startups. Uh, there's a lot of different strategies or uh, constraints that are need to be overcome in order to really develop those devices. And that and the strategy part is really how is it, uh, what way can we execute in order to meet the business side of the goals and, and really allow for those technologies to make a difference um, as a product that is commercialized. And, and that's, and that's a, easier said than done because we've heard of the valley where, you know, like, great ideas go to die because they just lacked the funding in order to move forward in. Um, and that's a really true valley, right? I mean, uh, when you think about like most projects at, you know, major corporations, only 20% make them to the end that they started on. That's, that's a pretty low percentage. And we really got to change that, right? In mm-hmm. order to make uh, a real impact because there's a lot of great ideas out there. But the question is, is how do you get that execution strategy? How do we design a multi-generational plan that allows so that you're not generating the perfect product that goes out uh, or with every single feature, but really the product that's going to get out there for the right price uh, or for the right cost that is minimally viable, that will make an impact on society uh, but it allows it to continue to evolve, to continue to become better, or uh, to become more features, so that the dollars don't prevent the the, the efficacy to really get to market, right? Mm-hmm. Or really to get to to the folks that really need it in society. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And one thing one thing you mentioned on the when we had our discovery call and we spoke earlier is. Um, how Zymedica talks or works with clients to create these multi-generational plans. And that's something that I feel like when I talk to other product developers, they're really focused on that one product that the client might be bringing to them. What is your guys' process with and, and kind of thinking behind creating these plans to best set up these companies for success? Yeah, absolutely. And this is where the... Uh, bringing right the collaborative team in order together to come up with that right execution strategy. So you have to have that strategy part. And a lot of the folks that report to me have strategy in their title, and it's talking about the business versus uh, um, the impact uh, weighing those back and forth. And the three things that I like to remind everybody is there's the technology slash efficacy to the biology of people, right? Uh, Impact uh, that everybody wants to make, uh, you know, like they want to get to the iPhone 11 versus, you know, you know, start with the iPhone one, right. As a, as a analogous product example, like if Steve jobs started with iPhone 11, he would have taken like 10 years to get there. Right. And that would never have never have gotten to the market. So you got to start somewhere. Right. But the technology and FXC, what's that minimal viable area. Um, and there's a lot of uh, discussion around that. And then the two other parts is what's the regulatory burden, re- regulatory strategy, and what is it that you need to do in order to get that product to the market? Because sometimes one extra claim can cause millions of dollars of more development time in order to do it. And people don't even realize it, right? Like that, like if you have five claims that really make a difference um, and they really can have an impact, one extra claim could actually add millions of dollars and maybe an extra year or two in order to the development side of things. So talking about that and seeing what those lines are and the benefit uh, is absolutely critical. So bringing that portion in. Uh, and then the last one is that business that I mentioned to you. There's there's a, a limited amount of, of dollars that are out there or money, money that's out there, even though it's really infinite, but you know, we, we make it finite because we've, we've set up these KPIs, whether it's earnings per share for the big companies or, uh, we need a, a, a whatever multiple for 
uh, us to sell this product or this company to another company. So therefore, our our budget is going to be this size. Um, we have to understand that too, because if you make a claim that puts you outside of that budgetary alignment where you can actually move the project forward or it violates an R&D budget that's going to put it like beyond, uh, it really is a disservice. So balancing those three areas are key. And right, and we have those discussions and then we fill out those columns and we, and we find the right sweet spot that allows us to move the project forward, knowing that there's an end point, mm-hmm. not just for the product, but for the whole project. Mm-hmm. I have a question, uh, Michael, given the fact that in large corporations, you can have 50 people that say yes and one person says no. And everyone sort of drums their fingers and looks at their pens, and then it's a it's a pause. Um, how do you right. overcome right. that? Because I imagine in every large organization there is a lot of very you know, particularly medtech, there's a lot of very very bright people that have their own agenda that say, "See, Generation Three has to be has to be generation launched now. One. We we have to get there now." Um, right. How do you overcome that? You know, what are the what are the the metrics that you look at to help them sort of c- come back to reality, if you will? Uh, so we help people to take a look at, so there's a few things that we take a look at. Uh, and, uh, and with one client, uh, we actually helped uh, monetize what the market and the benefit to to various patients would be if they get something that's lower uh, in what the generation three is, right? So like you said, everybody wants to get to generation three right away because that's the ultimate first generation that they'd love to market but they only have enough money for generation one. Uh, and so we model and help model. And I think you had Brian Wong on your uh, uh, podcast uh, you know, earlier yep. this year. Yep. Yeah, And I hired him on. Uh, and it was one of those things we needed to figure out how uh, success was going to be. And so we model for that one naysayer. We got to model it for, okay, you will make hundreds of millions of dollars because of just the sheer size of the market. Uh, even if you don't have generation three, right? This is what generation one looks like and this is what it is. And then if there's a generational plan, the initial investment of a little bit more every year or every couple of years will allow you to increase that market even further. So by putting those kinds of uh, figures in front of folks and, uh, and, and allowing them to see the benefit of doing something faster uh, really changes the conversation because now you're looking at like, well, it's in my best interest to say yes to something smaller. Uh, and when it's in everybody's best interest, that's when you get everybody to say yes. So uh, the you had David Copeland a few weeks ago talking about like user center design and getting there. And one of his biggest uh, challenges or almost frustrations that he mentioned on the call was like, oh, when the project gets three quarters of the way through, having it to stop because it just ran out of money or they didn't see the end there. Well, it's our responsibility as Zymedica to also help with that and say, look, by the way, you will run out of money. And and we have to do it not in the whole group setting. It has to be at different levels within the organization. So with my executive um, title, it allows me to have those executive discussions with the right folks uh, while our teams are having discussions on the projects and overall finances. And if you have multi-level engagement and build that trust uh, with the right uh, figures that allow people to see that we have their best interests in heart, um, I think there's nothing we can't accomplish. And that's when we succeed, when everybody listens to that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Thank you. It's so interesting to that we had Brian on for our first episode together with Medica and having you on, because I think it just brings it full circle of Brian pretty much introduced us and our listeners to Zymedica. You're kind of closing out what Zymedica does, but seeing that Brian is needed over this full process. And not only is he doing this front-end research, but how is that helping you and then your job and creating these plans for these clients? It's, it's just, it's very interesting and something I, it's, it's hard to see from the outside, but now that we've talked with so many Zymedicans, it's like, it's such an interesting set up for a product development partner and organization. It, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> oh, yeah, it, it makes us quite different because most yeah. companies talk about, give us a specification and we'll design the product for you. Mm-hmm. We are really forming our core beliefs to be 
we are an extension of our client. So our client, there's no division between us and our client. And if you're going to do that, then you really have to look at the holistic picture um, and not just be executing on something that's given to us, but really be part of the solution creation process. And even the problem statement that allows to get to the solution. Mm -hmm. And that's key. And that's key. Exactly. Yeah. In our last call too, you mentioned um, that Zymedica right now has like between 700 and 800 patents and in the new year, you're looking for a thousand. And we had our um, our MedTech leadership class this past Monday and it was all about IP and defensibility. And it was, we were talking, there's a few Zymedicans in the class, um, but we, a lot of the people in the class are like students or people just coming into the industry and they were like, oh, I'm, I want to get this patent. And we were like, it, it, it's going to take at least a year, usually more like a year is pretty quick. So just the sheer amount of patents you guys have been able to put out is incredible, especially when we were talking to all these students, telling them like, it's going to take a long time. I'm there. There's one student who is from Zymedica and I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he just got um, given a patent as well. And he got it within a year, which that's what we were talking about. We we're like, that's pretty quick for, for someone doing this by themselves. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, IP protection is a key part of every uh, portfolio. Uh, mm-hmm. It allows us, um, and well, allows us a great value because it, it really establishes us as an innovation leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you have folks that just come to Zymedica and get their first patent really quickly and, and everything's done collaboratively, mm-hmm. uh, it really shows that the individual in combination with a group of great folks together really accelerates the the development of great ideas mm-hmm. um and that's and adds more value for our clients portfolios right and that's where our clients come to us that's one of the big selling points is that we will help bring ip yeah. uh to you and it, it, yeah it, it helps defend and keeps you ahead of the curve as one of those elements that um uh you know, keeps you as a market leader you know or at least our clients as a market leader yeah, uh, no, it's it's great to hear that uh, that it still continues, and that somebody had mentioned that also too, because it's uh, we don't talk about it enough at Zymedica because it's become, you know, when you get to eight hundred and fifty patents, it's like, well, yeah, well, that's just part of what we do, you know, yeah. ho hum. But you kind of forget sometimes that it's pretty unique out there, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and when you look at IP and the value of it long term, whether it's a startup or an established company looking to have an exit strategy, that IP portfolio is very important, right? People that can help you- That adds to the value. Yeah, Yeah. you you can put another stake in the sand with that. It adds to the value of what you do and also what they do. So it's probably an easier sell that you have that that history of all those patents. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. in the med tech space, we, uh, like I said, we, when we, we launched our med tech uh, leadership program, which was our education program again this year. And we were just making some changes to it and to the curriculum based on like our feedback from last year and IP and defensibility, that class we moved from originally, it was kind of in the middle of the course. So people were taking it all the way through. We moved it to one of the first introduction classes because we found it is so important. And that's probably like the second or third thing an investor is going to ask you about is, what's your IP and how are we going to protect this in the future? And, and so it's, it was really interesting and pretty cool to move it forward. And it was kind of funny. Some of the people in the classes were like, why are we learning about this now? And we're like, you'll, you, you need to know this and you'll find out in a few classes why this is so important. <laughs> yeah. And it needs to be part of their strategy, especially for startups. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's important for mid-tier and the multi, you know, the top 20 multinationals also too, mm-hmm. uh, but they've collected so much and they, they have different ways in order to, uh, throw around their weight uh, at that point. But when you're establishing yourself as a startup, I totally agree. IP is a, a key part of what your your value is mm-hmm. to another organization that's looking to either take your product to market or buy your, uh, your new company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, another thing as I was thinking about the, uh, in addition to our, the, the IP that it's necessary. Um, I was thinking about those mid-tier companies too. And one of the things that we've been looking at also too is how we help those mid-tier companies, you know, that valley of of uh, of programs that just get stuck in the middle there. Right. A lot of those companies run out of R&D budget um, in order to get those uh, programs through. And, and we were looking at like R&D efficiency as a new KPI, as a new metric for some of those companies. Uh, and what we found is there's there's a, quite a few companies out there that the R&D budget that is preset because they're a public company at somewhere between four and like 
10%, somewhere in there where a vast majority are in the 68% of revenue place. Um, some of them, that 6% or 8% that they get, they get for every dollar of R&D they spend, they're getting like $2.5 of new revenue coming in in the following years. And there's others that are getting for every dollar that they spend, they're getting another dollar of revenue. So there's like really not that much value in the R&D. They're just kind of treading water, if not losing market share at that point. And, and what we want to do is try to help those folks, you know, get out of that zone. Because if you're spending a percentage of your dollars and it's just a cost line item and you're not getting value out of that, that that's really a problem, right? You're really not moving things forward. Um, so that's a new thing that Brian and I and, and a few others just really started looking at and said, okay, we got to help these companies because there's something not not sitting well with us when they can't succeed just with, even though they're spending lots of money, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you've got, you just said 20% of the projects in R&D only make it till the end. Um, that's particularly, right. And when you look at this, you look at whether it's a public company, you mentioned public companies, but also a, a private company that's say on a series C Series D round, you know, $100 million, $200 million, which, which happens at a regular basis when you read the capital markets. There's a lot of people looking at that now going, how do we, how are we going to efficiently employ this capital? And I think a lot of people don't, when an analyst comes in from a Wall Street firm who's following, you know, a, a certain equities or something else, they don't potentially express their efficiency of their R&D efforts, right? As no. as part of it, you know, our P and L, we're cutting costs. Uh, you know, our our capital, our 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 balance sheets, you know, been beefed up. Well, well, we're spending, we're getting back six dollars for every dollar we spend on R and D versus a dollar twenty five or two dollars, right? Um, that's right. And, and that's the type of thing you can really help them with. That gives them something to go and talk to because. To be quite honest with you, on a number of analyst meetings, they can get kind of boring when you just sort of, you know, run through the sa- the standard things that everyone else is talking about. Very true. Very true, Tom. And it, it's and it's it's unfortunate, right? Because it's become like a script. It's this is my script, mm-hmm. and I'm going to follow the three steps of script. And if revenues are going down, I'm dealing with those costs so that I'm protecting your earnings per share, uh, and that's what goes forward. And then when we come, you know, back out, we'll have new products coming over. But nowhere, nobody ever really expresses like, well, how are you going to get new products if you're actually cutting costs? Are you actually changing something else to get that R&D efficiency up so that you get more dollars for every dollar that you're spending? And how are you going to do that, right? And and it's kind of a mystery to some folks. And, and Zymedica is kind of getting there where we're showing people that how our dollars that you spend, with this company that was a mid-tier company recently, we showed that we could the, in five years, they would get $10 for every dollar that we spend for us in five years, right? And that's, that's well, they're a unique company. I would, I'm not going to sell that to everybody that comes into the door <laughs> for us. But, 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 but let me tell you that that was a big, like eye-opening um, uh, meeting when we were showing that to them and that in their own marketing department and their accounting said, yeah, we looked at the numbers and that looks about right right? We can absolutely do this, right? If we do this right. Uh, and that was with all the generational planning, mm-hmm. the um, the right timing and risk-taking on developing products um, and balancing the right regulatory strategy with all that. When you balance all of those things, you can get some pretty good R&D efficiency out of that. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, that's mm-hmm. something else for the analysts to talk about now. Any analysts listening to this, you can, t- you can thank me for that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tom. <laughs> you mentioned, um, I guess, regulatory as well. And Tom had a question last time that was like asking, in your opinion, has COVID changed kind of the regulatory environment? Um, do you, what do you think about that? <laughs> you know what? I So I do. I think yes and no. Right. Uh, I think there was a I'll start with the yes and the optimistic side of things also, too, on the. On the in vitro diagnostic side, um, the FDA absolutely, yeah, I'll, and I'll take on the FDA, absolutely take, uh, issued a lot of emergency use authorizations, um, and they took on faith um, with a little bit of documentation from a bunch of clients in the vitro diagnostic area, not our clients, but a, a bunch of companies in the vitro diagnostic area uh, to get products out that could actually help society in an emergency way without having to go through the whole regulatory burden. 
Um, and I haven't done the numbers yet with uh, yet, but on the great side is that it actually got things out there. We got information, right? Because testing, 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 you know, like you, you could hear various governors just talking about the, the need for testing, the various healthcare, uh, you know, policymakers also need for testing. And that's the way to do it. And that really helped quite a bit. Um, and we saw like, okay, there's a glimmer there. Like, can we get things out uh, in a way that's more efficient without having the regulatory burden review, et cetera. But, but at the same time, uh, on the pessimistic side of things, there was a lot of, of uh, reversals of the emergency use authorization that occurred also too. So there were products that were out there that after the FDA spent a few more months looking at the data, they realized that the product was only like 50% like effective. So let's say like a test that is 50-50, you kind of might as well just roll the dice at that point, right? 50-50 is not really good enough for a diagnostic test. So so you start getting these reversals back uh, after these companies said like, well, you know what? We think we're going to be able to get you know 90% and higher efficacy rate or uh, uh, accuracy rate. Uh, and they were only running in studies on like, I don't know, very small populations, very small populations. So you can, with the data on a very small population, you can get pretty much high numbers but when it's on the larger populations, then all of a sudden, like those numbers don't look as good a- anymore. So I, I would say on the positive side, the FDA worked very, very collaboratively uh, with industry in order to move things forward. And that's a really great sign that they can do that. And I think that can help going forward. On the other side, I do think that um, the FDA is also uh, going to be a little bit, it's going to take a step back a little bit and say, you know what? We do need to have the right rigors in place because if you lose faith in the medical device community or in the vitro diagnostics community, or if you lose faith in the science because too many approvals are being had uh, without enough rigor in there, then then we lose. COVID is pretty clear that you lose faith into anything, even wearing a mask, right? You lose faith in everything. Um, and so we have to be careful about wanting to strike the right balance between regulatory um, partnership and um, speed to market. Because, you know, faith in the system and faith in the science and faith in our, not only by our, our, our populace, but even doctors and nurses right. are absolutely key in making this um, move forward in a positive manner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and in, in saying that, is the United States the gold standard in the regulatory world? I mean, if because you deal with a lot of multinationals who are selling, obviously, cross-borders. When they go to sell something into Holland, uh, do they go, well, the United States has approved it. Is, you know, the Dutch can be incredibly um, uh, opinionated, let me say. <laughs> um, but anyway, can you then turn around and go, you know, the U.S. has approved it, so we're okay. Is there, a, are we the gold standard? Uh. I think in some areas we are, but in other areas, we're not so much anymore. So if you went like a decade ago, 10 years ago, uh, maybe 10 to 15 years ago, a lot of companies, um, and I'll I'll start with regulatory um, speed, right? Would actually start their new products in Europe uh, versus coming to the United States. They go through the regulatory bodies in Europe first, or through the notified body in Europe first before coming to the United States, because the regulatory body in the United States, FDA, was just so rigorous, right? That was that, that was the discussion. So everybody's regulatory strategy was okay. Let's go to Europe first, mm-hmm. uh, and then over the last decade, um, that's changed, right? Uh, Europe actually increased their regulatory requirements on a variety of different areas. They went from uh, the medical device directive to the medical. Um, to the MDR, uh, which is a new set, set of standards, to uh, to the IVDR, which is in vitro diagnostic regulations that that, that they've been updated, and they did that a, a lot of it because uh, some of the folks in Europe were like, "Well, hold on a sec." Like, first, everybody was we had a great set of devices that were over here, but now all these companies are coming to us because our regulatory burden and um, where we just trust companies to do the right thing more. Uh, and so we require less review is actually having a backfire because it's almost like they're doing field tests in Europe because some of those things that they were getting approvals on weren't quite, again, up to snuff. 
not 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 of a majority of them, but there's enough percentage of those that were going there that there were some adverse events occurring in Europe where the Europeans were like, okay, well, is this where every the whole world comes to test the devices in our population? Mm-hmm. And so if we if our folks are getting injured because it wasn't quite tested to the level, we don't want that. We we don't want to be the center of the of the universe of where we go do field studies and then go to the US. And now it's actually evened out where there's actually um been a convergence worldwide. Even China uh, you know, who is, you know, you know, in the United States, at least it's, we're famous for calling them the, the, they're the wild, wild west of, you know, regulations. Uh, China is actually elevated. They've actually looked at Japan, Europe and the FDA, and they've combined their, uh, you know, their China FDA is combined a lot of the best rigors that come from all of the other major medical device uh, markets and really applied a lot of that rigor into their own market. And it's changed quite a bit over. And so I actually think the, the world itself has converged um, and, and adopted best practices from each other. So while we have some areas that are gold standard, I think other areas, people are, other parts of the world are actually a little bit ahead uh, now, uh, at least balancing rigor with, with uh, collaboration with, with, with the, yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, uh, an interesting conversation, Tom, you might be interested in this as well, um, I've had recently. So we hold a lot of programs for like groups of international uh, med tech entrepreneurs have been working out of Korea was the first kind of market we were working in. We were talking with um, some groups in Quebec and Japan as well. And they, for a couple of years, they were sending, the government had financing to either send them to groups in the U.S. or groups in Europe. And in the three years I'd been to NEMIC, the first year I was here, they all got sent to the U.S. The second year, they switched it and sent them all to Europe to these boot camp programs or accelerator programs. And now they're looking back at the United States. And it's super interesting to talk with the the government organizers and then also the um, accelerator organizers that are have these cohorts in for Quebec, for example, I was just speaking with um, one of the, the contacts last week is they're looking to the U.S. market and it might not be because of the regulatory, but because of the market here is so large, this is kind of their first target market. And the reason we're talking to them is because all these startups, it is incredible the amount of money some of these countries put into their startups with not without even knowing kind of if there's a market or if they're going to make it to market. These startups raise more money than some of the startups I'm working with here that have been working for years and years that are just being given it from the government, but they're able to use that money to come here. And then the, the reason we talk to them is because then we teach them, we're like, all right, you have this money, you're coming here, you have this technology, how can we actually fit it into the U.S. market? Is it actually going to be used here? How are we going to you know, commercialize it and, and send it through regulatory. But um, it, it's incredible for they, they're choosing. And that's like when I was talking with Quebec, they were choosing between should we go to the U.S.? Should we go to Europe? Obviously, they, they, they're choosing the U.S. just because of the, um, uh, the, the distance. Um, but it, it just blows my mind sometimes seeing. And then the startups come here and have absolutely no clue and it's it's incredible to see they're 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 the classic startup that talks about the technology 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 for years and years and years but there's never any any business side and then they come here for a week and want to they're like all right how do i raise money and how do i commercialize it like i want to meet investors by the end of this week (laughs) (laughs) that's right that's right and 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 by the way now that you have the technology you still need the healthcare economics or the business strategy along with uh, the regulatory portion, yeah. right? And if you don't have all yeah. those three, yeah. So, and you guys are doing a great job, you know, educating folks um, mm-hmm. in order to do that. And I'm glad they're coming. They they tried Europe, but I'm glad they're coming back to the U.S. because U.S. still is the largest market. And yep. even though um, uh, the FDA has put some regulatory burden on there, I would I would argue actually they've been very over the last eight years, eight to ten years, both through the last two um, administrations. They've become a lot more collaborative in a lot of the things that they do, and they really want to see companies succeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, coming to the U.S. is actually a great, uh, a great thing. And and the market is quite large here, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's a pretty big percentage of the GDP is is medical healthcare. So it's kind of yeah. hard to argue that where the money is. Yep. Yeah, and I didn't even know. Like talking with the the. the my Canadian friends and in Quebec is they there's no even if they do commercialize and kind of get their their devices into the system up there they're not making any money because it's all it's it's you know 
not that's the right. si- system we have down here. So there's no way to make money for them. And that's why they have to come here. But it's just crazy. Like a lot of the startups that we're talking about, like sending down here, they've been working on their companies for like five years since they kind of started the technology. And I'm like five, like five, that's a, that's a long time. Um, and it's all supported by the government, which it's kind of like backwards Or I'm like, if we had that type of support here, like we, it, we would be unstoppable with kind of the technologies we'd be able to get to market to have kind of that pre-seed like funding. Um, and that's kind of what we're, we're trying to do is trying to find that space early on to not only educate them, but also try to get them that money that's not from an investor, maybe from grants or from these research grants and try to say, you know, get this money and work on it. But, um, it, 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 I wish that we had those type of incentives for companies that these other governments are putting on too. If, I have a question, which is a somewhat philosophical question, not to get political, but if healthcare weren't such a large percentage of our GDP, would there be as much medical innovation as there is today? Right, Because the returns are obviously there for an investor to be invested in a seed company and then a series A, series B, series E, all, all the way through, and then sell it to, you know, the company that's got a market cap of $150 billion, $200 billion. Tom, you make a very valid point. And let me tell you, I believe that, and I think you can look at it either with the drug prices or medical device prices, uh, that we, because of the costs that we burden our our own organization and are able, because we're a capitalistic society, right? Mm -hmm. So it it can be driven up. Uh, We probably help uh, innovation to a much larger extent because the world sees us as a market. And so they, so now, yeah, exactly. And so, so not only the U S companies, but worldwide companies see that um, innovation is the key in order to capture some of those uh, that potential part of that market share. Right. And, and, and the, and the good side is that, you know, they're actually doing good for the work, the world, right. There's going to be impact, a positive impact that they do it. So, we could have some unintended consequences if we lower costs too much, right? And um, because then it could be disincentive to actually invest in new types of products. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll have to keep an eye out for that. And maybe we have to come up with different ways to incentivize, as Danielle was saying, right? If if you're bringing down costs, then you need other incentives. And maybe government, whether it's government incentives or grant foundations that allow that focus on particular diseases or disease mm-hmm. states, um, have to continue and and be the you know, you know the the bearer of uh, of you know the flag to really to push that part forward right because mm-hmm. if you don't have something incentivizing folks um, we really don't want to have that unintended consequence of of if it really diminishing the efforts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting, Daniel. You mentioned that people from Canada and Quebec in particular didn't feel like they could make money there. Is it not that they could make? a return on the investment or they couldn't make enough money to incentivize investors to fund them? They're it, they're not going to make, and I think I'm not a hundred percent sure, but since because of their healthcare system, because it's more, is, is socialist the right word? No, it's <laughs> national it? healthcare system. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Cut that out. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but so what the, the guy was ta- talking to me and he's, he's the, um, the contact I have up in, in Quebec is just the, the way that they're, they pay for their, their technologies or for the devices that are being used. They're not going to make any, any income on it. They're paying for the, the government will pay the startups to develop them. Mm-hmm. they're going to be using them, but it's not, you're not going to make any money off of it. So these people that are developing them, like these entrepreneurs, they are pretty much working for the government to, and helping patients, but they're not going to be making money like you would be as an entrepreneur down in the U.S. in, in this space. That, that's interesting. We probably should do a little bit more research in, mm-hmm. uh, in, in that particular market just to see how um, incentives can go. Because, I mean, down here, I mean, obviously... Uh, if you go into a venture company, they're looking for 10, 11 plus multiples. Uh, and and if you're doing that, then the value has to be there, right? The mm-hmm. the, the the ability to make, to, to get that return back if you're going to sell a company of that size, uh, at that size as a multiple of the R&D spend that you just did mm-hmm. really has to be quite a bit up, up there. Uh, mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. 
So I have one more question to kind of to round out this episode. Um, and it's what has gotten you in your eyes to the point that Zymedica is at now with your full product development process? And, you know, it's so differentiated from other people. But what in the past has really gotten you to have this streamlined process? Uh, so uh, when you were saying uh, uh, five years, you know, in to develop uh, a project in uh, or product in in uh, Europe. I'm, I'm sorry, in Canada, uh, like I was like shocked at, you know, my eyes just wide open. I'm like, if we and they're had not five even years, on, yeah. they're not even on the market. The technology. <laughs> is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I'm like, if, if we had, if Zymedica had five years, I mean, we totally would be not following our process because uh, it yeah. would take like forever. I mean, we we're lucky if we get half of that um, mm. uh, as, as a target goal. Uh, so I, I think it's really been market driven. Like everything that Zymedica has done is how uh, with with the following question like how do we help our clients succeed right and every time our clients come in whether it's a, you know a startup or a multinational uh, or a mid-tier company one of the things they always ask is you know the time value cost of money right is is a real thing and so speed is of the essence because uh not only for the money side here but i want to continue to emphasize the impact to society like people when you're in the medical device area are passionate about the fact that they can help people. And every month that you're not helping people with their product is a month that you can count the number of people, their families are affected. So you want the speed to market to occur. Um, and there's in financial incentives that go along uh, by these companies in order to do that. So we, we've always talked about, okay, how do we maintain a high level of quality? Because it's the client's need, quality is always up high, which requires a user-centered approach, you know, balancing the needs that I mentioned before, uh, because that's when you get a great product to market. Uh, and then and then how do we make it as efficient as possible with the right level of rigor that we that uh, right level of rigor and risk, right? And there's a balance between also those two. So our processes were uh I mean, and I had the pleasure of writing down the first drafts of all these pro processes being at Zymedica for so long, you know, wrote half of the, uh, of the SOPs and, you know, and, uh, uh, and wrote the product development process on paper, you know, after Aiden, myself and others had like uh, really, you know, been honing in and answering those questions, right? How do we keep the high level user-centered design, innovative approach, balancing with speed to market and the rigors of quality, putting it together. And we, what we, we came up with was it's a flexible approach. It's got to be depends on the situation. And we got to allow ourselves not to be boxed into a corner where we cannot move faster if we have to. Um, and that's been our ethos ever since then. And if you keep that in mind, there's nothing you can't do and nothing um, without the right rationales that you can't move forward with. Mm -hmm. That's something to Aiden, um, who, if, for anyone listening, um, doesn't know Aiden Petrie was the co-founder of Zymedica and then also came and co-founded Nemec after um, he retired from Zymedica. And his whole thing is, since we've been working with everyone we're working with, we've tried to put programs together, especially like our educational program um, and accelerator programs. That's how can we teach all these startups things they need to know, but the, the problem is when you're working on actually all these different medical technologies, every time we build a program, we keep it super flexible as well. Like it always depends. Like that's always just, that's a, a message that comes up everywhere is it depends. This is kind of, we're teaching you what you need to think about, but while you're working on your technology, that might not be right, but also it just depends what you're working on. And it, that was also a theme throughout our whole MedTech leadership program. We have like I think 19 different teachers that teach all the classes and every single class is always a different teacher. Someone would ask a question and a, a teacher would say, well, well, it depends. <laughs> it depends on it. <laughs> yeah. Question and adapt. Question yep. and adapt. Right. Hmm. Yeah. And then one last thing I think we talked about our last discovery call too, which I thought was very interesting. You mentioned um, some of your clients coming to you and saying, we, you know, we partnered with you and we came to you to accelerate this process. Um, and we've talked about regulatory a lot on, on this this episode. And there's no, and this is something Aiden has also said, both at, at Zymedica and Nemerus, is there's no acceleration in med tech product development. Because of all the regulatory processes that you have to go through, there's no acceleration. You can try to accelerate, you know, maybe the product development and R&D, the business on the back, but no matter what, it's going to take 
the same amount of time to go through that process. So it's just very interesting to hear as well, clients from you and clients from us as well saying, why can't we do this quicker when right. Right. it's what you need no, to do? No, and, and, and let me add to that, because uh, I totally believe that there's a there's a max speed that you are, you know, a terminal velocity that you can get to when you're del- delivering, you know, a highly qualified products that is safe and user centric. Um, there's, there's certainly ways to go slower. Um, uh, and, and the reason why I say that is there's a lot of companies out there that go slower because they have a one cookie cutter way of doing things. Mm -hmm. So there's ways to go slower, but I totally agree with Aiden. There's ways to speed things up, but you can never compare to a consumer product, right? Mm -hmm. The consumer product, when you do not have the same level of weight that you're measuring against because people's lives and health are at risk, uh, versus, you know, if your phone, you know, reboots, uh, okay, or you drop your phone and it stops working, right? It, 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 there's less of an impact. I mean, there could be a strong emotional impact to you, but 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 there's a but there's less of an impact to your well-being at, at that particular point in time, and we got to weigh that, right? And so there's there is a max velocity that you can absolutely do that, and then you have to be cognizant of that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, people say. COVID has accelerated di- digital transformation by five years. Where we thought we'd be in 10 years, we'll be in five. Where we thought we'd be in five years, we'll be where we are now, essentially. Is there an element of digital transformation that has to happen on the approval process? I mean, I know governments are inherently um, analog. <laughs> yes. Is, 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 there, is there a way to bring some efficacy to that um, uh, and efficiencies to that uh, uh process through digital transformation uh, uh you know what we we probably need a whole podcast to talk about that but yeah you're 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 absolutely yes the answer is yes uh, let me give you an example like so the two things that the covid have done is they and we talked about a little bit of bit of belief right but Be- the belief and to um that something's going to work and that you you can use it I was um I was on a panel with the Cleveland Clinic so and I was talking to a, a few physicians because I advise uh, Cleveland Clinic, Clinic's uh, innovation group, and one of the things that they mentioned to me and I'm pr- paraphrasing is that their um the the women who were pregnant who were going in for who used to go in for you know checkups et cetera um, the telehealth portion. Uh, before COVID and after COVID, the telehealth usage went up a thousand percent. I mean, like, uh, so a thousand percent sounds like a lot, but it was a lot. They're like, they're like, they're looking at Cleveland Clinic was looking at every which way in which they can minimize risks to their patients and to conduct effective telehealth um, uh, with with their patients. And patients were absolutely prefer it because who wants to put their baby at risk by going into where you know, ground zero of where the COVID, everybody rushes who has COVID. Everybody rushes to the clinic, to the hospital who has COVID. So why would you rush there for your checkup, right? If that's where everybody is. Uh, uh, so that that belief system in the physicians that in their response was that, wow, this works. I, I may not actually go back because now I can have conversations with my patients and and still have this near the same level of interaction and actually even more interaction in some cases, because now I don't have to turn away and type my notes into a computer because I I can actually record my session and get it uh, uh, over video and actually get it transcribed later on into the notes. So it actually made them more efficient, which makes them really want to be actually adopt some of these technologies even faster. So when you have a belief system in the user groups, in the various user groups that they that there is another way and and telehealth can actually work. Uh, I totally agree with that assessment that it's sped up five, five years. There are ways that we're never going to go back. And I mean, in, in Livongo and, you know, Teladoc's merger and others that are doing, it's almost in everything that we're doing at Zymedica now where every project coming in has to have some sort of digital component to it uh, uh, because it's just that important, right? How do you make this accessible um, to folks? And not only in the clinic, but also driving a lot of this stuff, the acceleration of the treatments at home. And if you have more digital enablement, you'll have actually more treatments that will be conducted at home versus having to go to the clinic. Mm-hmm. So 
the other part of that is, you know, like someone like SAP, right? Supply chain management and, you know, various, various, uh, software as a service platforms residing in the cloud. Is there anything that works with, you know, up the approval process and documentation of, of, of med tech that is sort of a standardized process that's delivered and, or is it all running through word and Excel and various documents that show up <laughs> as a PDF form and it's one big rat's nest. No, no, there's, there's definitely standards out there um, yep. that allow for um, interoperability. Yep. There's, a, there's still a lot of improvement that needs to go. There's certain standards and, um, uh, and ISO standards that are being adopted as far as, you know, cybersecurity and other yep. things of that nature and how things get communicated to each other. We know of HIPAA, yep. um, you know, we know of the GDPR, which is the European data privacy regulations that are out in Europe. All of those things, there are uh, standards that people are adopting, but we still have a ways to go, right? Uh, people have to share more and it has to be more secure mm -hmm. as you're sharing some of these uh, this information. And so it'll accelerate. So that's why innovation is going to help accelerate that because yeah. now that the users are bought into it. And let me tell you, even though the reimbursement codes every year, there's dozens of reimbursement codes that help pay for these kind of televisits yeah. or um, remote monitoring or remote kind of like diagnostics, whether there's vitals or some other ones keep coming all the time. And once you've changed the way the payers pay, Right. And allow for digital to occur. And the fact that people believe that physicians and patients both trust it now, um, there's definitely going to be an acceleration. You know, uh, that that asymptote, uh, you know, that acceleration is just it's going to go faster. So absolutely. COVID, that's one of the benefits of COVID. It's, mm -hmm. it's absolutely going to help that. Oh, great. Thank you, Michael. And for any of our listeners, if you want to listen to more on how COVID has really it, accelerated the technology space and the digital health space in um, healthcare, scroll back a few episodes to our guest, Jeanette Toyjanova. Um, we had a great episode with her, who is also a Zymedica employee, um, all about this. So also, if you're listening and also in the digital health space, we have um, a few spots open in our Nemec Digital Health Accelerator. Um, it unfortunately is only open to Rhode Island residents, um, students at Rhode Island universities and employers. Um, but we do have an accelerator program for for new ideas and technologies that are coming out because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so check that out on our website at www.nemiccenter.com. Michael, it was a pleasure having you on, um, especially recording. It was a pleasure talking to you too, right before we go on winter break. Um, and yeah, so if anyone listening wants to get in contact with you or learn more about Zymedica, what's the best way to do that? Sure, they can find me on LinkedIn, um, the company's uh, Zymedica's leadership page. I'm also on there. And then, of course, by email, mperera at zymedica.com. Um, all, all good ways in order to get in contact with me. Uh, and thank you very much for having me on here. I've I truly enjoyed uh, the conversation. Thanks, Danielle. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure, man. And Tom, I can't believe we're closing out our last episode together. I wish we could do it in person. <laughs> it's been so long. <laughs> well, good luck. And thank you very much. It's been a real, it's been a lot of fun and a learning experience. Lifelong learning. <laughs> All right.